Let me ask you this morning, how many people would you say that you trust? <clears throat> how many people do you trust? And I'm sure just inside of the workings of society, there's a basic level of trust that has to be there. When we were building our home back in Sharptown, I remember one time the, the plumber was gonna, going to come. This was after we had built it and after we had moved in, was coming back to do something, and I said, don't worry, I can, he asked if we would be home on a particular day, and I said, no, but I can leave the basement door open for you. I trust you, and he said, yeah, but do I trust you? He said, because you could trust that I'll do, you know, come in and do the work, but what if you leave the door open, something else happens, you're going to assume the plumber's the one that stole your dog, or, you know, whatever the case might be. And, and it, so it got me thinking that this aspect of trust, there's a basic level of trust that says, I trust you to fix my car or to come in and uh, fix this leaky pipe. I trust you to not poison my food when I place the order and it goes back into the kitchen and it comes back out. But when it really gets to fundamentally, like, who do you trust at that deepest level that you would share a personal concern and the person would handle it appropriately and confidentially? Who do you trust enough that you would give a key to your house <clears throat> and not worry about if it were to be misused? Who do you trust that if you, all of your passwords fell into their hands, you would not be concerned? You would maybe send a note saying, can you just forget what you've just seen? But there wouldn't be something that really speaks out that really bothers you. You wouldn't be alarmed. That kind of deep, personal, authentic trust, how many people would you say in life do you trust? I would say it's definitely under 20, even if you're a very trusting person. It's probably under 10. For some of us, it's under five, and let's face it, for a few of us probably in here, we've been burned a time or two, and you would maybe put that number at one or zero, what it looks like to have that, that type of trust. It's been said that the words, I trust you, are perhaps more meaningful, more impactful, maybe even more valuable inside of our culture than the words, I love you, because I love you has been misused in such a way as to say that I can love you now, but not love you tomorrow. But when there's trust, when there's deep, authentic, personal trust, it goes a long way. We can sometimes superficial understanding of love could pop up from time to time. We could have a <clears throat> this idea that we should or we have to love other people. But I don't have to trust anybody. And so I wonder if a more valuable phrase inside of our culture is I trust you than even the words I love you. I think that's what lies behind the passage we're going to look at this morning is the word trust. That for each of these I am statements in the book of John, we've kind of attached a, a meaning to them of, of what lies behind the I am statement. Because as Jesus gives a word picture, as Jesus gives an analogy, he's speaking to something that goes so much deeper to the character of God and the heart of what this relationship between uh, humanity and God looks like. Now let's, let's review for a second before we get to the one for today, uh, where we've been the past couple of weeks. I am, uh, these are self-descriptive statements of Jesus, self-identifying, self-proclaiming statements that Jesus makes about himself. With the I am, there is a, a certainty to it. <clears throat> this is not I think I am, this is not I want to be, 
These are statements of certainty I am made by Jesus. We've mentioned across the past uh, few weeks that people may say that they don't know what they think or how they feel about the Bible or about church or about Christianity or about this or, or that, but by and large people still respect and, dare I say, trust uh, Jesus inside of their lives. And, and why not continue to point back to the things that Jesus really said about himself and who he is and then what that means uh, for us inside of our lives. So week number one, we uh, read this together. I'm going to ask you to uh, do it again with me just uh, for the sake of fun and because I can and I can for force you to read things out loud um, even when you don't want to. Uh, the verse was wrong at the top, but we have corrected that, so the title slide is right. This is John 8, 12. It's not out of Luke, uh, which uh, popped up for a couple of weeks. All right, let's do this, because especially my voice is fading, so I might give most of the message to you, and you just, like, repeat it out loud after me uh, today. All right, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so in talking about we looked at then what that means I am the light of the world uh, he's the one that illumines our path he's the one that directs our steps week two we went to what was going to be the first of two uh, shepherd images uh, sheep images we're going to come to the one in just a, a couple of minutes but in John chapter 10 uh, verse number nine uh, Jesus says this I am the gate whoever do you want to read aloud again well, I don't want to rob you of that opportunity all right so help me with this I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And then last week, uh, Bill, as, as we prepared our hearts for communion, this verse out of John chapter 6, verse number 35, uh, read it with me. It says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Again, these are all word pictures. These are all uh, ways that Jesus taps into what the people around him knew, understood, and he offers them deeper meaning. It's what he did through the parables. Through a lot of his teaching was to point to something that went much beyond just uh, mere words, but to create a picture. And so for all these I am statements, they are... Uh, specific, they are certain, they are self-referencing, self-identifying, but they also point to something that creates in people's minds not just a theological statement, but a picture then of who Jesus is. So we come back this morning to John chapter 10, just after the verses we read the other day in uh, verses 1 to 9, about Jesus being the gate. We know, though, that when we read that, there was mixed in Remember, we had talked about Jesus mixed his metaphors, and at times he appears to be the shepherd, and at times he appears to be the gate. And what we mentioned then is it's possible for him to be both at the same time, because in town, there was the corral, right, that had the manufactured gate, and the watchman watching over it, letting in the shepherds, letting in and out the sheep. But when you go outside of town, when the shepherd uh, or the owner takes the sheep out, and begins to build a, a makeshift pen for them based on the surroundings of, of what was there and what was available the shepherd himself laid down in the opening and he was the gate and so we mentioned then that Jesus then is the the pathway to God 
He's the provision of God for our lives, and he's the protection of our lives. Those three P words, when we looked at Jesus as the gate a couple of weeks ago. So now we come back and we pick up again in John chapter 10, beginning where we left off in verse number 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks, and the, flo- attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so as Jesus uh, begins to pick up on this aspect of what it means to be the shepherd, again, he's already in verses 1 to 9 talked about that he's the shepherd and that he's the gate and what that begins to look like then for that word picture. But then he moves on and he further nuances this idea of being the shepherd. There are 300 references to sheep inside of Scripture, more than any other animal. There are a variety of animals that are mentioned, but you know that that sheep and shepherding, and if we add in shepherds, uh, the amount of times that that shows up inside of biblical stories, that, you know, we read things like, we all like sheep have gone astray, inside of Isaiah chapter 53, that... uh, The very first shepherd in scripture is right after you get past Adam and Eve and their sons that Abel is the first shepherd beginning in Genesis 4 when he brings his offering to the Lord. It's an acceptable and a a pleasing offering. Perhaps the most well-known verses in the Old Testament are Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters and he restores my soul. And he leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that he's with me and his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup runneth over. And I know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then I'm going to dwell in his house forever. The words of a good shepherd there inside of Psalm 23. David writes that, and David is the shepherd king. David rises to become a valiant warrior and king, but he begins as a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, we begin to read that the coming Messiah is going to not be like the leaders that Israel has had, but it's going to be far different. And the language there is what it means to be a true shepherd who cares for his sheep and doesn't merely just devour them who takes care of them and doesn't abuse them, who provides for them and gives them what they need. And and Ezekiel goes down through inside of this vision what the coming Messiah will do versus what the well-meaning or the not-so-well-meaning leaders of Israel could not do. And so all throughout Scripture, we're accustomed to reading about sheep and about shepherds and about shepherding. 
In fact, who was the first to hear about the birth of Jesus on the page of history but a group of smelly shepherds out on the hillside? It wasn't the townspeople in Bethlehem. It wasn't the priests in Jerusalem. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't the emperor in Rome. But it was shepherds. And so so inside of that is... Jesus picks up this metaphor in John chapter 10. It makes complete sense to them in terms of the world that they live in, but it also makes complete sense for anyone who has a knowledge of the Old Testament to know that Jesus or that the coming Messiah would equate himself with shepherding, but also even more than that, that he's the one who is the good shepherd. And so he makes a few points about what that looks like. The first is that there's a difference between the shepherd and the hired hand. You know sometimes that when you own something, you take greater care of it than when somebody is hired to manage it. Even if you take two people of the same work ethic and the same integrity, you will naturally begin to care for something at a much, to a much greater degree if it is yours than if it is not yours. It's just the nature of what begins to happen. You begin to see things differently. And so Jesus says that as the good shepherd, do you know if you're, if you're hired and it's your part-time job to take care of the sheep and the wolves come, at some point you're going to leave to spare your safety and say, the $5 an hour, the $10 an hour is not worth it, uh, I'm out of here. But not the shepherd. The shepherd stays and he protects them even to the point of laying his life down to watch over. The second thing he says is that there's a relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. They know him and he knows them. They hear his voice. Even to the point that he equates that with just as the father knows me and I know him, they know his voice. And we're going to talk about that just in in a couple of moments. But the third thing he also says is, is that As long as there are wandering sheep, he's going to continue to look for them and to search for them. Two weeks ago, when we looked at pathway and provision and protection, we talked about what it means that as Jesus there lies in that makeshift corral, lies in the the opening point, that there is access that there's protection, that he's the one that provides for us. But you know, when when he picks up this imagery and he talks about being the good shepherd, it gets intensely more personal than simply just the way in and out or the one who provides or protects. But these aspects get a bit more personal. So I want to walk down through each of these uh, three things that Jesus talks about in relationship to the Christian life. The first point is this, that we belong to him because he laid down his life for us. We belong to him because he laid down his life for us. Again, Jesus' listeners would have resonated with the imagery of the shepherd versus the hired hand. Do you know one of my, this probably doesn't paint me in the best light, but that's okay. I told you a few weeks ago that I slept with a stuffed dog, you know, for five years of my life. But I worked for a a security company in Kentucky as a part-time job when I first got to Asbury. It was minimal wage, but it got us into events at the University of Kentucky. Uh, Football games, you know, uh, concerts, not so much basketball games. We were outside in the parking lot in the the freezing cold uh, 
for then, but the basic philosophy of this security company was if you just take kids and you put a jacket on them that says security and you place them somewhere, most people are going to be deterred from doing anything just by seeing someone there in the vicinity. They told us your job is not to be the hero, is not to be the, uh, the valiant warrior who's going to come to the defense. There are paid security inside of every section, inside of every area. You just have to stand here. No weapon, obviously. No radio. Nothing. All we had was our little jacket that said security and our place that we were told to stand. So, afterwards, we would hear stories of, yeah, down in section so-and-so, a fight broke out. And I jumped in to, to break it up, and I got punched, and I got this bruise, and I'm holding ice. And I don't know, maybe it speaks to my integrity or my wimpiness or whatever, but I'm thinking, for $6 an hour, I'm not jumping in the middle of a fight, especially when there's other people there to do it. I'm going to run, yelling, fight, fight, you know, and send somebody back uh, to that. Now... Again, this doesn't paint me in a great light because I think a few weeks ago I said, remember when we talked about a hero is someone that when everybody else is running from danger, they're running towards it. For $6 an hour when I'm a freshman at Asbury, I'm, I'm running from and I'm letting the people who are more qualified go towards it. But again, there's a difference between a hired hand and an owner. But Jesus takes it a step further and he says, even to the point that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is taking what they knew to be true and what everybody could picture in their mind, and all of a sudden it's the woe statement. Because the goal of the shepherd was not to die for the sheep, but to live for them. You could not be of much help to the sheep or to your family if you lay yourself down so that sheep could live, but you die. There is no father in the world that would ask that of his son, there is no even boss who would ask that of his employee. Even if you calculated the value, the relational value, even the financial value, that is not a good trade-off. Yes, there's risk. Do you remember David when he was preparing to fight Goliath? And his trust was not in Saul's armor, but he said, He who delivered me from the paw of the lion will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. Shepherds knew what it was like to be in danger, but the goal was not to lay your life down for the sheep, but to defend the sheep as best as you could. But Jesus takes it and he goes even a step further and he says, this is how you know that I am the good shepherd, because I'm going to lay my life down for the sheep. That they're going to have life because not just I'm a valiant leader, not just I'm a worthy commander inside of their lives, but because I'm going to lay my life down. Because Jesus knew that what really was needed for the nation of Israel and for every other generation that would follow since and that came before was not a strong earthly leader, but a Messiah could, that could do something about the internal condition of their hearts. And that only happens through the shedding of his blood on the cross. It would mean very little for the Messiah to deliver in an earthly, political, materialistic way, but it would mean everything for the Messiah to deliver in the ways that really count for eternity and for redemption and for a life in Christ. I wonder then if when you look back in the Old Testament and there's not much reference to heaven, 
And the afterlife is not very pronounced in the Old Testament. If even David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, when he writes Psalm 23, he says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and then I'm going to dwell in his house forever. Because when you're in the presence of the good shepherd, it's not just about the here and now, but it's about what life truly looks like for an eternity. So he's the good shepherd. And good doesn't just mean the opposite of bad, but good, the word implies that there's an aspect of perfection, of nobility, of honor, of greatness to who he is. And so it gets a little bit more personal, not just I'm going to protect my sheep as best I can, but I'm willing even to lay my life down for them. Second, that ability to know God, what it means to know him, means that we can also hear his voice. This is not just knowing in the sense of a God who laid down his life for you, and yes, that's great, and I'm going to be with him for an eternity, but now I'm just going to do the best I can. But four times inside of chapter 10, he makes the statement that they'll be able to hear my voice. They're going to hear me. They're going to know me. They're going to be able to understand what it is that I'm saying to them, that they'll be able to know and hear from me. Just as the Father knows me and I know him, so they're going to be able to hear and to know and relate to me. Not mere recognition or remembering, but conversational relationship that we have the opportunity to hear God. How do we know that it's God that we're hearing? How do we know that we can hear God? How do we know that it's not just the voice of what I want to do or the voice of somebody who I really respect, you know, that, that I can hear replaying inside of my mind? How do I know that it's the voice of God? I just want to just touch on this and camp out here for a second. Five ways I think that are kind of clear inside of scripture and down through the history of the church of how Christians hear God. The first is scripture, that God speaks primarily through his word. If you want to hear God, then why not start with the words that we know came from him? I'll also go as far as to say that God will never speak to you in a way that is contrary to scripture. Now, does that mean that only God will only speak to you in quotations of scripture? And if it's really God, it's going to be in the King James Version. And that's not what I'm saying, but... But if you think that God is leading you to do something that is contrary to what you read in Scripture, then I think you better move down the list because you're probably missing something somewhere along the way. That God's voice is consistent with Scripture and God often uses and draws out principles of Scripture and how he speaks and directs us. Second is the peace of God. Often we'll hear people talk about that I was going through something and major decision or something going on and then God gave me a peace. Sometimes that seems subjective. I know that you probably rolled your eyes at that a time or two. I would never do that because it's my job to kind of listen and not roll my eyes. But sometimes people talk about a, a peace maybe in ways that you're like, I don't know if that's really God or not, but, but it's hard to argue with. And, and where I think I want to go with that is if, if we really believe that the Holy Spirit journeys with us, that there is something about that peace that passes understanding. Again, it's not in contradiction to Scripture. But sometimes there's the peace that we feel deep within, that we know that we know I can trust him, or it's going to be okay, or this decision, even though it's hard, is the right one. 
where I should take this next step forward. That peace that comes deep inside of our hearts. The third is godly counsel. Sometimes we want to run to this, number one. And if all you're doing is surround yourself with great people, sometimes you could miss the voice of God. But if all you're doing is surrounding yourself with your Bible and your pen and hoping for a peace, and you're ignoring the people that God's placed in your lives, you are missing something as well. Godly counsel. Surround yourself. These relationships are cultivated long before you need them. It's possible that, that if something, you know, the bottom drops out and you need to call on somebody, whether it's a, you know, professional person like a church staff member or somebody that, that you've known, they'll be available for you. If it's somebody that you've always respected in the church, they'll be available for you. But how much more so if you've taken the time to build those relationships and invest in people and allow people to get to know you. And you're, you've shared coffee over little things, and then when it comes to the big things, there's already a rapport that's there. There's something about Christian community that pays dividends inside of our lives when we invest and offer ourselves in relationship to people around us. Trusted relationships create space for clarity and for direction and for guidance. And so if, if you want a, a good marriage, don't read a book of somebody who's been married three years. Talk to somebody who's been married for 50 and they're still holding hands together as they walk down the church aisle. If you want financial advice, don't get it from somebody who's broke. Now listen, I know that there are things, there are things that happen, and, but I'm, you, know, you would never do that in other areas, and so the same is true spiritually. To surround ourselves with godly people and godly counsel. The fourth, and maybe this goes back up with number two, but I think it, it's a separate thing because of the behavior required that we need to learn to seek and to listen. And probably the emphasis on the second word is listen. Listening takes time. Listening takes silence. Listening takes the ability to know that I don't have all the answers and I'm not going to get them just by continuing to talk and continuing to run. But the busier we get, I think the less we hear God. The more hurried we get, I know for sure the less we hear God. And sometimes in the midst of the chaos, we have to stop and sit and listen. Again, I am included in this. Most of my prayer time is me talking to God. Most of my prayer time is me even telling God what I think he should do or how he should act in certain situations. And then at the end, I'll be like, Lord, will you lead me and teach me and show me? Amen. And I get up and go. And how often do we build in times of silence to listen, to wait, to be still and to know that he's God because we've given enough open space inside of our lives to be able to hear him. And the fifth is to obey what you know to do now. Oftentimes we don't, we're so concerned about what we should do three steps from now, what's going to happen two steps from now. And you know the one thing that you can do. I can't fix this situation with my son or daughter, but I know that for now I can write the note, I can continue to 
you know, love my grandchildren well. I can, you know the things that you can do. I know I can begin to pray for that relationship. There are things that we can do, but we are so concerned about getting the answer on the big thing that we skip the things that we know that are right before us that we can do, should do, we know to be true. And so in the midst of all the other things, scripture and hearing from God and seeking his peace and godly counsel, do the things that you know that you can and should do. Very few situations of people that I talk to and in situations in my own life are we completely powerless to do nothing. Usually there is something we can do, and it's not going to be what solves it or what fixes it, but there always is a next step that I can do in the meantime. Obey what you know to do, even in the absence of what you don't know. Now, so if this is how we hear God, there's, I think it's worth saying that there's some opposite of, let me give you some ways that we know that we won't hear from God. And let's start with those five, not spending time in his word. Not seeking to know his peace in the midst of the decisions that we make. Not surrounding ourselves with community. Living hurried, busy, chaotic lives. Sitting still and not acting even inside the things that we know to do. But let me give you a few others that are not just the opposite of what's on the screen. Pride. Unaddressed sin. Bitterness. Resentment and fear. And we could probably add five or ten others. These are things that keep us from hearing God. It's not just about, oh, I'm dealing with resentment inside of my life, and it's really just about this one thing that I wish happened and it didn't. It may be preventing you from hearing God's voice inside of other areas of your life because you've not dealt with this one thing. And you know because it's come out of your mouth that this dissatisfaction in one area of your life spills over and all of a sudden begins to infect other areas if we're not careful. So we can hear God. We can hear his voice. We can know him. And third, and this, this point quickly I want to end with is we have a shepherd who relentlessly searches for that which is lost. That he says that there's other sheep that aren't yet in the pen and as long as that is the case I'm going to continue to pursue them. In John chapter, Luke chapter 15, we read about the lost coin and the lost son, but also of the lost sheep. That the shepherd would leave 99 to go and find the one. Doesn't that really serve as the definition of what a good shepherd is? That 99% is not good enough. That he's going to continue to pursue the one who is lost. That God cares about lost things. That God cares about lost people. That the people that are frustrating in your life because of what they say or what they believe or what they do, God loves and he would gladly leave the 99 to run after them and bring them back to himself. Now, this is true for a couple reasons. One is, if God cares about lost people, then I think we need to care about lost people. So that's why we're saying this year we want to engage and invite and pray that God would use us in some way to make a difference in somebody else's eternity. But secondly, I think lostness does not have to do merely with salvation. But there are times in your life, there are times in my life, that we begin to wander. We begin to carelessly go astray. We begin to struggle with things of why did this happen or why didn't it happen in in the way that I thought it would, and we begin to deal with disappointment with God. We become isolated. 
our Christian lives grow flat or distant or stale. Do you know that the Good Shepherd even continues to search and to hunt for you? Even if you're already, quote, a part of the fold, and you're still believing in him, and you're still in church, but you're going through something? I think we could take this to heart that the one who searched after us and strived after us when we were a long way from him to bring us back, he's still the one who searches and runs after us, even inside the situations and circumstances that we feel, even as Christians. We're never alone. We're never deserted. But he continues to call us and to pursue us and to even carry us back home. From what I read, sheep are stubborn. They tend to wander. They tend to have a poor eyesight and even at times a poor memory. And at the same time, they're defenseless. And I wonder why God, over and over in Scripture, compares us to sheep. Stubborn, a tendency to wander, poor eyesight, poor memory, defenseless. And yet Matthew 9, he said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. One final passage, and we're not going to read this, but you know in John chapter 21, after Jesus is resurrected, and they, they meet there by the, the seaside, and it's the time when Peter is restored back to him. He asked Peter the statement, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know I loved you. And that, that happens three times, but in each of the three cases, there's, there's another phrase, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then make sure that you take care of my flock. I think we have the, the responsibility also is not only being the ones who have been saved and rescued and that we hear the voice of, of the shepherd and we walk in relationship with him and he holds our future and he holds our eternity, yet also we become sheep who become shepherds as we invest our lives inside of the kingdom of God. Now you come to the end, and, and we're not going to read it. I had slides for this, but the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 10, is people responding to what Jesus just said. And there's basically two, two schools of thought. The one is he's out of his mind, he's arrogant, he's blasphemous. Who is he to say the things that he's saying? And the other side doesn't respond of, oh, he made a good point, or we think he's true, but what they said is, can a person who heals the sick and gives sight to the blind be wrong? I think he's worth following. In other words, we don't know exactly what this means and what to do with it. And is he Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? We don't know. But all we know inside of this is people we know who were lost have been found and who were blind are now seeing and people who were hungry ate. And we think we're going to give him a shot to begin to trust him with our lives as well. So let me ask you a series of questions about Jesus as your shepherd. The one is, have you trusted him with your life? 
Not do you like Jesus, not do you believe in Jesus, not do you even love Jesus. And all those things, they may or may not be better phrases, but I wonder inside of our culture if a more valuable phrase that really speaks to the deepest part of who we are is have you trusted him with your life? And not merely for salvation, but trust him to be the one who leads your life better than you can. Is it personal? Because that's the language that's spoken of here. Maybe not can you, maybe I should have put do you hear his voice. Maybe not an audible voice. Maybe it's not always 100% clear, is this God, is it not God? But can you look back, cross your shoulder and say, he walks with me and he talks with me and, and he speaks and I can know and understand his voice. He's never going to leave you. But he's that good shepherd that we can count on that throughout all the days of our life and all circumstances and all scenarios, he is constant. When life seems to change, he's constant. When I'm inconsistent, he's constant. And he's steady. And he's worthy of you trusting him with your life. Let's pray together. Let me ask you this morning if what's one situation or maybe one person or one thing that's going on or one area of your life, what's the one thing today that you simply can utter this prayer during our closing hymn is, Jesus, I trust you with fill in the blank. Maybe it's I trust you with my life because I've never done that before. I've skirted around the edges, I've been in church, I know the message, but I've never trusted you with my life. Today can be that day. I know for some of you there are procedures that are happening this week and surgeries. Say, Jesus, I trust you with my healing, my future, the things I can't control. For some of you, there's great uh, sorrow and difficulty inside of family situations. So maybe there's a couple of people's names or a situation. Maybe it's financial in nature, maybe it's an aspect of a particular person who's struggling, but I would say don't let that get too far away from the first person. There are plenty of times to pray for somebody else, but today what would you say Jesus, I trust you with, and fill in the blank. Father, this morning we thank you that you are the one who is our good shepherd. That from Psalm 23, with the Lord is my shepherd, all the way through John 10, with Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. That it's one of the things that throughout scripture becomes a bedrock for us that you are close and you are personal and you are steady and you are sure and we can hear your voice and we can know you. And so, Father, where the, where the rubber meets the road for us this week, Lord, if we trust you with, with our lives, we know that you are bigger than whatever this thing or this situation or this person is. So, Lord, we trust you even with these things. 
would you have your way in us and through our lives and in our circumstances. This week we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.